We are looking today at the famous story of Lazarus' resurrection from the grave. Lazarus, he doesn't actually say anything in the Gospels, and Lazarus means God is my help. What God does for him says everything you need to know about Lazarus. So John 11, verses 1 through 37. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Just understand what he just said. He loved Lazarus and his sisters. So when he heard he was sick, he didn't run to help. He stayed where he was two more days. That's important. And then he said to his disciples, okay, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see this by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here... My brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing on in John chapter 11. Again, we're looking at the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus' name means God is my help. 
And we're going to pick it up here at verse 38 in John chapter 11. And we read the following. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the, sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is God's word. We've been working our way through John's gospel ever since Christmas Day. Christmas Day, I preached on John chapter 1, the opening in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And throughout John's gospel, we've noticed a couple different patterns that develop. For instance, in John chapter 6, we get a long narrative about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then Jesus uses that as an occasion to teach about how he is the bread of life. And in John chapter 9, we get this long narrative about Jesus causing a man who was born blind to be able to see. And Jesus explains, I am the light of the world that helps people see. And here in John chapter 11, Jesus raises his good friend Lazarus from the dead, from the grave, and he teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. See, so there's this long, big narrative. There's a profound teaching attached to it. And in each occasion, what we find is that as Jesus' miracles ratchet up, the implications attached to the cost of discipleship also ratchet up. Okay, so on each occasion when Jesus presents who he is and what he's offering, interestingly enough, no matter how big the miracle, people start to walk away. And the reason for that is because when they realize that he's powerful, yes, but he's not primarily God's power for their purposes in life, but he's God's power for God's purposes in life. He's God's power for advancing God's kingdom. They start to lose interest. So it's not that he's not powerful. It's just that he's not self-serving of me. And they start to lose some, some levels of interest. Following Jesus, it is exactly what every human needs. And yet it is scary to flesh that really only wants to be comfortable and survive life. Which is interesting because not a single human's flesh will survive this life. But our flesh's knee-jerk reflex instinct is to try to survive and to be comfortable. And that is at odds with the cost of discipleship. Now, John's gospel, we've said throughout this, is a book of signs. That's our sub-theme. Every miracle is referred to as a sign that points to something bigger and deeper. And in John chapter 11, we get the seventh climactic sign that Jesus performs. It's also the seventh time that Jesus gives one of his great I am statements, which the John's gospel is really structured upon. And the convergence of those two things means that this is a pivot chapter. It's a turning point in John's gospel. It is the quintessential miracle of the resurrection that points to Jesus' resurrection. And the resurrection, by the way, is the quintessential miracle, not simply because it's the most impressive and the most powerful and it's the most divisive occasion in human history, but it's the quintessential miracle because it proves, it proves that God's MO in how he operates in life is that he brings life out of death. God doesn't simply give life. In this fallen world, he brings life directly out of death. Open tombs always come after full crosses. 
Resurrections always come after crucifixions. Glory only ever comes after suffering. And our flesh just hates that teaching. It hates it. And it's actually kind of comforting that Jesus' closest friends really struggle with it too. So we're going to take a look at them here today. In the first lesson, we read how Jesus and his disciples were away from Judea, and they were informed by a messenger that some of his closest personal friends, so Jesus' closest friends outside of the disciples, are this set of sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And understanding that he's clearly a miracle worker, these women, when they recognize that their brother has fallen sick and it might lead to death, they summon the friend, who's also a miracle worker, and thinking that he can help. And it's at that point when Jesus gets the message, him and his disciples, that he says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, undoubtedly, the messenger who brought that message took what Jesus just said here, this this sickness will not end in death, and he took it back to the sisters. And therefore, the sisters are absolutely flabbergasted. They're completely baffled when Lazarus dies. Because either Jesus didn't know what he was talking about, or he doesn't have the power to help, or it wasn't true. They're baffled the fact that he dies. And another interesting detail of this, then, is that when Jesus actually does show up several days later, The two sisters, they come out to to Jesus, but they don't come out at the same time. They come out one at a time. In Martha, who's the first one out, she says, we read this earlier in, in verse 21 of John 11. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Interestingly enough, if you read through this really carefully, you might have noticed that 11 verses later, when Mary comes out, she says verbatim the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What that tells you, what John's telling you by those ladies saying the exact same thing word for word is that they're echoing each other, they're parroting each other. You know why? Because they've been talking to each other the past couple of days and they've landed on this conclusion. Why hasn't Jesus come? Why doesn't God show up? If Jesus had been here, our brother would not have died. And so they say the exact same thing. Now, what's also interesting about that is if you're familiar with Mary and Martha, there's another kind of famous story in Luke chapter 11, about Jesus going over to the home of Mary and Martha. And they become sort of like famous for their two different personality types. Martha is like busy, like cleaning up the house and making a meal. And she's like, you know, going 100 miles an hour. And Mary is like sort of just attentively sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. And we get from that, that there's a personality difference between these two sisters. Martha is sort of this like dutiful doer. And Mary is sort of like this contemplative thinker. But they're very different. They're very different individuals. They have different personalities. And yet, it's then very interesting that when Jesus, they come out to Jesus, they both at separate times say the exact same thing because they got the exact same problem. And Jesus doesn't respond with the same answer. Jesus says to Martha, when Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died, he teaches her about the doctrine of the resurrection. Like, uh, don't worry about this, Martha. Your brother will rise. Yeah, I know about the resurrection. But when Mary comes out and she says the exact same thing, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. We're told that Jesus simply weeps with her. You know what that means? It's amazing. These, these two women, they're so alike in so many different ways, but they're fundamentally different in their personality types. And the way that Jesus ministers to them, the one thing that's similar is he doesn't give either one of the sisters what they think they need. That tells you when God ministers into your life, it is always individual. 
The good shepherd knows you intimately and he gives you exactly what you personally need. What practically that means is you should never compare the way that God is ministering in your life to the way he's ministering in somebody else's life because they're totally different than you. Number two, he's almost never going to give you what you think you need. Number three, he's always going to give you exactly what you do need. Okay? In the text proper then that we read just a couple minutes ago, we find that, okay, Jesus is with the family mourning, and he, on his prompting, they go out to the graveside. And Jesus, the first part of this is he says, take out the stone from the entrance of the tomb. And Martha, who, remember, is always kind of a pragmatist, she's like, yeah, don't do that. He's been in there four days. Four days, by the way, is the, in the Jewish mind, it's roughly the time that a, in, according to their mythology, how long a soul would have remained around a body after it had physically died. So he's waits to right beyond that point. And uh, she says, Lord, he's been in there four days. It's going to smell. And we're going to circle back to this in the application section. But for right now, all I want you to see is she clearly does not believe Lazarus is going to rise. No one does. She's speaking on behalf of everyone. Not a single person there, despite Jesus repeatedly saying it, thinks that Lazarus is going to rise from the grave. And so Jesus then looks up to heaven, and he says, Lord, I'm saying this and I'm doing this, not for my benefit because I know that you're hearing me, but I'm doing this for the sake of everybody else here, that they may believe that you sent me. And John is going to pick up on that particular theme, and he uses it at the end of his gospel, and he says, this is the whole purpose of why I wrote what I wrote. These things are written in that order that your eyes might be open, that you might see clearly who Jesus is, and that by seeing, you may believe and have eternal life in him. That's the purpose. And after Jesus says, roll away the stone, the stone is rolled away, he looks up and thanks God. At that point, he looks at the tomb, and he specifically says, Lazarus, come out. And I'll tell you what, when you can just say stuff and things happen, that's how you know you're a powerful person. When you just speak and stuff happens, so like if you're a CEO and you say stuff and stuff happens, if you're a judge or you're a king or a queen and you say stuff and stuff, that's how you know you're an important person, right? Powerful person. This makes me think of God at the beginning of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, where he orders all of creation simply by saying, let there be, and the whole universe starts springing to action. Because that's the power of God's word. And you need to see that because that's the power it has in your life too, whether you realize it or not. God's word has power to give structure to your void and order to your chaos. It gives meaning to what seems meaningless. It brings life out of graves. It absolutely has the power to bring and do everything in your life. Okay, so using God's word, I know it's cliche for a pastor simply to, you know, say like, you should be in God's word, you should be in God's word. But like, look, I know it calms your storms. I know it gives strength to your frailty. I know it gives life to your death. I know it opens the doors of graves. And frankly, by the way, a lot of commentators have mentioned this. It's a good thing that Jesus specified Lazarus come out because if he had just looked at the gravesides, and said, come out, a billion dead bodies would have emerged from the earth. Okay? That's the power that God's word has in your life. Now, what does it mean? I got three application points for you here today. The first one, the unexpected blessings of suffering. On any given week when I preach, I always want to be sensitive to the fact, I know it's not always the same people, but there's always a couple dozen people who are going through something. There's, there's a couple dozen people in here right now who are going through something. 
that they are, they, they maybe wouldn't say it because they know like good Christians aren't supposed to say that, but they're thinking or feeling like, God, if you love me, why are you allowing blank? And so it's really helpful to see Jesus' closest friends, Mary and Martha, saying the exact same thing. And it's actually very similar to what went on in John chapter 9, where we have the man who was born blind who gets healed. And remember, Jesus' disciples said at that point, who sinned? Was it this guy? Was it his parents? In other words, what they're saying is, why is this happening? Why does this pain exist in the world the way that it does? And Jesus' response, if you remember to them at the time, is, this happened so that the glory of God might be revealed. In other words, the purpose of suffering is God's glory and human long-term benefit. Got that? The purpose of suffering is, is God's glory and long-term. The, the goal of suffering is glory. Now, that is so counterintuitive to the way we think and feel in an upside-down fallen world. But I got to take a couple minutes just to explain what that means. Okay, so there is this glory of suffering, first of all, is strength. It increases strength. That's how weight rooms work. That's how muscles work. The basic idea here is that for muscles, if you think of faith like a muscle, for a muscle to actually grow, it has to be broken down first. That's how it gets stronger. So I, I won't bore you with uh, the things here, but I actually... Uh, looked at a couple of different textbooks this past week to talk about, like, why do muscles grow? Two different explanations. Muscle growth occurs whenever the rate of muscle protein synthesis is greater than the rate of muscle protein breakdown. And the body repairs the micro tears by adding amino acids, actin and myosin, to the myofilament, which causes them to grow in size. For your muscles to grow, they have to suffer. Now, if you're going to be more faithful, you have to have more faith. If you're going to have more faith, you have to exercise your faith muscle. If you're going to exercise your faith muscle, you must become convinced that you don't have control of the circumstances of your life. Now, the fact of the matter is you never do, but sometimes you're more aware of that than other times. And to the degree that you recognize in those moments when you recognize, I am not in control, if you are convinced that God is in fact in control, your faith muscles will grow. It's not until you actually lose control of your life that you become in tune with the fact that you are never actually in control of your life. And it's in those moments when you see that there is a sovereign God who's in control of all things for your good. That is the only way to become faith stronger. What happens over in weight rooms? Suffering happens in weight rooms. Where do muscles grow? In weight rooms. These things are not mutually exclusive. They actually, there's a direct causational line between the two, okay? So part of the glory of suffering is increased strength. Part of the glory of suffering is revealed love. All true love entails suffering. On a salvation level, for Lazarus to rise from the grave, for us to, in the future, rise from the grave like Lazarus rose from the grave, it required Jesus to lay down his life. For us to get life, God had to lay down his life. There's no such thing as genuine love apart from substitutionary atonement, apart from suffering on somebody else's behalf. The best illustration I can think of for this, by the way, is, is simply just parenting. Because I'm a little unfamiliar with the topic uh, in various ways, I have to do a little bit more research on it at times. And I, this is the first time I've ever thought this through carefully and, and read through this this past week. But 
Uh, one of the things I learned, over 75% of women, when they first get pregnant, within the first trimester, uh, will at least experience nausea, but will likely vomit. What a weird cause and effect. Like, you have conceived life, and now you have to feel like you're dying every day a little bit. You know, at the very least, if I was female, I would think, okay, well, the dad of this child, can he at least feel like he has a hangover for three months? <laughs> so, yeah, the idea that it's, it's crazy. What's also crazy is we don't actually have a, to my understanding, we don't actually have a scientific causational reason for why women get nauseous when they get, like, we still haven't figured that out. It's something to do with hormone changes and stuff like that, but we still don't know. All I know is, in order to raise up a life, you got to lay down a life. By the way, a little while after that, you get something called, we call it labor. Like in order to bring life into the world, you're going to have to go through what might be the most intense pain you have ever gone through. Why? Because in order to raise up life, you have to lay down life. And then on top of that, for the next at least 18 years, maybe 20, maybe 25, Gen Z, it might be 30, your money, your vacation plans, your sleep, your career trajectory, it all gets altered significantly. Why? Because you can't raise up new life without laying down life. There's also another really interesting principle that, you know, go figure, an other-focused triune relational God created humans with, that when you love someone or something and it suffers, you suffer. There's this great spot in Psalm 56 where King David says, Record my misery, Lord. List my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Save my tears, save my tears in your wineskins. Hold on to my tears. You know what he's saying? God loves you to the degree that whenever you're hurting, he hurts. You know what this is like. I mean, a couple of years ago, my, my dog, who I love to death, tore her ACL. And when she limped around the house, I felt sick to my stomach looking at her. That's a dog. Now, your kid, your spouse, your friend that you care so deeply about, tell me that they can suffer and you can't suffer. If Then you don't love them. If you love them, you will feel that hurt, right? To suffer means that you must have experienced love and blessings in your life. So, uh, the glory of suffering is increased strength. The glory of suffering is revealed love. The glory of suffering is also enhanced trust. There are many different things that we learned from this lesson in retrospect, but it's always interesting to me, like, what did the people at that time particularly learn? And we never hear anything from Lazarus in this, so I don't really think all of this is primarily about him. The ones we hear about in this text are Mary and Martha. The primary thing about this text, what are we learning from this text? Uh, specifically, what we're learning is the fact that Mary and Martha have to rely on Jesus keeping his promises. And you know how long Jesus delays to keep his promise? He delays his arrival until the point where in their brains, it's impossible for him to keep his promises. You know, like there's circumstantially, it's impossible. Again, I told you the thing about the, the, the soul four days after the death, the Jews thought is like long gone by that point. Jesus willfully delays his arrival in their life until they logically can't conclude how he could possibly keep his promises. Which is to say, to have more confidence in God's promises, you have to have less confidence in your earthly circumstances. That can only come when you face 
suffering and circumstances that you don't want. That's the only way to grow in confidence. By the way, uh, pushing the, the metaphor of like muscles, faith as a muscle, there's two ways for you to like develop those muscles, either voluntarily or mandatorily. So if you want to get in better cardio shape, you can go into a gym and run on a treadmill. Another option would be if every day you were just running for your life from grizzly bears. You would also get in good cardiovascular shape, right? One of them, they're both, they both work. One of them is a lot less stressful than the other. So what this means for God's people is the way you voluntarily get those muscles into shape is you voluntarily act on the things that he's already promised to you. And then when life happens, those muscles are already developed in order to face the resistance. So it works like this. If you are already generously giving away a large portion of your wealth because you are so confident that God is going to make good on his promises of provision in your life, then when life happens, when your car breaks down and you think, how am I going to pay for this? Guess what? You are going to process it way better because you've already developed the muscle of trust in God's provision in your life. This is the way it works with all of God's promises, right? So there's, this isn't a comprehensive list, but, you know, it's a good place to start. The glory of suffering is increased strength. The glory of suffering is revealed love. The glory of suffering is increased enhanced trust. Now, second point, present resurrection. I'm going to go into much more detail on the power of resurrection, both Christ's resurrection, which has already occurred, and your future resurrection, which will occur, both of them can give you power in the present. I'm going to explain that in detail when we get to Easter. For right now, though, the only thing that I want you to see is Martha's words here again, this interaction that Jesus has with Martha. They go out to the graveside. He says, roll away the, the stone from the entrance of the tomb, and, uh, you know, he's going to come out. But very first, go back to the original interaction. And Jesus was teaching her about a resurrection. And uh, she said, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. And he says, yes, yes, but the resurrection. And she says, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection on the last day. See, the Jewish people absolutely had a conception of a resurrection at the end of time. But Jesus' response to her in that moment is, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, look at the, the tenses of the verbs. He's taking the idea of the resurrection from something that she's looking at as a future benefit and he's moving it into right now. I know eventually this will, you know, resurrection will be helpful in my life. And he says, no, I am right now the resurrection and the life. And one of the things that I've learned in, in doing ministry for a number of years is God's people, generally speaking, have a clear awareness that at the end of time, they will rise from the grave and live eternally and it'll be good. But far fewer of them are tapping into the power of what it means that you have access to Christ's resurrection right now. Now, again, I'm going to explain this in more detail come Easter, so wait on that. But for right now, let me just say this. To the degree that the idea of resurrection becomes bigger in your mind, becomes more real in your mind, your fear in life will become less scary. And your trauma in life will become less debilitating and your regrets in life will become less stinging to the degree that resurrection becomes a big idea right now. To the degree that resurrection becomes a big idea that you think about every day, you will become more hopeful, more confident, more joyful. 
More on that when we get to when we get to Easter. But right now, last point: dying to rise. I said I was going to circle back to this statement that Martha makes at the end of the text. They've gone out to the graveside, and she says, "But Lord, at this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days." I've made the case throughout this series that generally speaking, when Jesus performs his miracles, he's sort of like metaphorically standing on the platform of believers' tangibly expressed faith, like them acting on his promises. He's standing on that. The resurrection's different, though. Now, in some respects, there's something similar. Like Jesus does say to roll away the, the believers are rolling away the stone from the entrance of the tomb. But with Jesus' resurrection, the reason the resurrection is the quintessential miracle Again, not simply because it's the most powerful, not simply because it's the most impactful, but it's because it's the one that happens, not because people have expressed faith, but despite the fact that no one has expressed any faith. No matter how many times Jesus told people, I'm going to rise from the grave, no one believed him. The women coming on Easter Sunday didn't believe him. The disciples locked behind closed doors didn't believe him. Nobody believed him. Jesus didn't perform that miracle because people had faith. Jesus performed that miracle despite people not having any faith. The same thing is true with Lazarus. No matter how many times he tells these women he's going to rise from the grave, they didn't believe him. And what that tells us simply is this. First of all, God absolutely does respond to your tangible expressions of faith. So express faith. God will bless that. Believers miss out on a ton of blessings because they don't actively express faith. But with that said... God's ultimate goodness is not dependent on your faith or your faithfulness. God is good because God is good, and there is not a single stupid, faithless act of disobedience that you can do to negate God's goodness. Your extraordinary resurrection is not becoming because of your faith or faithfulness, but it's becoming despite any lack of faith. We don't sing amazing faith, how sweet the sound. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Not because, but despite. I just want to close it by saying, I know there's people every week, but tonight too, there's people who are right now are looking at something in their life and saying, I don't know what good could come from this. You know, I lost my child. I lost uh, the love of my life. I lost a, a brother or sister, and, and maybe I don't, I'm not even sure if they were saved. I don't see what possible good. And one of the things that I've learned in ministry again over the years is that you know, early on, I would try to just explain the doctrines to people. And one of the clear things that be became clear to me was that, like, if you have somebody who is facing cancer, it's not really helpful to them to explain microbiology and why radiation might be able to help whatever's in their body. What they just need is a good doctor. And when you have somebody who is in the legal battle of their life and they're getting sued and they're like, it, it, it's not super helpful for them to, to throw law textbooks at them. What they really want is just a really good lawyer. And when people are facing either the big death or lesser deaths in life, it's not always super practical or helpful to explain the doctrine of the resurrection. What they need to do is they need to see the guy who rose himself from the grave, the guy who rose their brother from the grave, and the guy who will one day rise them from the grave too. They need to see the guy who will one day undo every single trouble that you have ever faced. And so you need to see that Jesus weeps for you right now and he will raise you soon enough. What he commands at this moment is that you walk out of 
the tombs of life, that you walk out of the tombs of hopelessness in this world, that you walk out of the traps of sinfulness in this world, that you walk out of the illusions of control over your life in this world, that you be unburdened by those grave clothes, and that you go and go in peace and testify what your Savior has done for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't, we don't like suffering, but we would also are convinced we don't fear suffering because you have redeemed this world through suffering. And one day we are going to be fully free. So today, give us hearts of courage and voices of praise no matter what we are facing. May it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.